is an Odyssey original. This is the War in Ukraine Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Uh, We've covered the pandemic for the last two years now. A new focus here, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Today, Russia appears to be gearing up for an attack on Ukraine's capital city. We speak to a teenage refugee who is now in Greece with his family. And we hear from a Ukrainian woman who got married the day the Russians invaded. President Biden announcing more sanctions on Russia's economy. But we start with the very latest in Russia ramping up its offensive. The stalled convoy outside of Kiev on the move. Uh, Phil Itner, journalist currently in Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, what do you make of what's happening outside of the capital? Well, yeah, guys, it, it looks like what the Russians are doing around the capital is dispersing into uh, areas where they have more uh, cover from the sky. So into forests, into uh, kind of uh, areas where they can get uh, under some sort of cover, if that's a, like a roadway that uh, has a crossover or something like that. Clearly, the Russians have uh, changed their tactics because they've been just getting pounded by uh, Ukrainian artillery used in conjunction with uh, drone strikes, uh, that they have uh, received an, a number of drones, uh, particularly from Turkey. Um, and so they are uh, spreading out uh, further into various areas around the capital. Now, whether or not that's strictly because they are having these problems with uh, getting hits from the air uh, or from artillery being targeted from the air, or whether or not they're moving into staging areas is yet to be seen. Of course, the Russians don't necessarily telegraph why they're doing what they're doing. There's also been strikes further into the West, right, in some of these areas that have been a little bit quieter, at least. Um, what do we think that is? Is this actual strategic target stuff, or is this just the Russians uh, doing that terror campaign, just bombing to remind people that, you know what, we can do this? Well, I mean, that might very well be part of it. I can tell you where I am in Lviv, which is a city that has been inhabited for a thousand years and has a great historical value and cultural value to Europe. Uh, last night, uh, we had at least three air raid sirens, and so we had to take refuge here in Lviv, which is relatively unusual. When I first arrived here about a week and a half ago, uh, maybe two weeks now, uh, we were getting air raid sirens, but then for a great period of time, a long period of time, nothing until last night when we had those three in quick succession. Uh, now, in addition to that, the Russians did actually strike an airport, an airfield uh, north of me about, I would say, maybe um, 60, 70 miles north of me in a town called Lutsk. Uh, There is an airfield there that they struck the actual uh, airfield, killing some Ukrainian service members. Uh, It is believed that potentially that is because it was going to be used as some sort of air air campaign from that landing field, whether that's drones or some other asset. But, you know, for the uh, Russians to use uh, a kind of medium-range missile, which is apparently what actually hit the airfield, uh, there was clearly an indication on their part from the Russians that that airfield was going to be used to combat their air power and their air superiority. Uh, Mike and Charles, you have to understand one thing that's very important in this campaign, and that is dominance in the sky, something that everybody thought the Russians would just achieve normally and something that the Ukrainians say they need an awful lot more assistance in controlling. But regardless, we are now 16-plus days into this campaign, and Russia does not have dominance in the air. 
Journalist uh, Phil Itner, who is there in Lviv. Phil, thanks for joining us again. We've been fortunate to bring you a number of stories from people impacted directly by the war in Ukraine. Today, it is a teenage refugee who took a three-day journey with his family to get out of his home country. Nazar is currently in Greece. He says he doesn't know what's next, and his family may go all the way to Turkey. Nazar, what has this experience been like? This whole journey from Ukraine uh, to here was devastating. Uh, It was very hard to live through it, as it is very stressful, very hard emotionally and physically. Uh, But on the journey here uh, to the Greece, I saw a lot of open hearts, a lot of openness from people and support from different countries. People are accepting our my family uh, to live in their houses uh, for no payment. Uh, in Greece, they uh, made their paid roads for free. Basically, there's a lot of support for Ukrainians, and I really appreciate appreciate that. T- tell us about your family. How how many people do you have with you? <laughs> I have a big family. Uh, I have uh, two brothers, one sister, uh, parents, and a dog. <laughs> and we are traveling on a <laughs> minivan. <laughs> and why why did you end up in Greece? Uh, mm, my father is uh, looking forward to traveling to Cyprus, as he sees there some opportunities for future job. Uh, yeah. So in three days, we will try to go to Cyprus. Okay. So you're going to keep moving on your way out of Ukraine. Where were you? What city? Give us an idea of what things were like before you made the decision that, that you had to go. Uh, we made this decision at the last moment, like when everything began, a lot of families started to, uh, leave Ukraine weeks before the conflict uh, started to emerge. Uh, It was first day of the war, and my parents woke up because of the explosions that they heard uh, nearby. And this is, it was very frightening, and it was very scary. There were a lot of panic in our family, and we packed everything, like, in a rush, and uh, left Ukraine. And it took us three days uh, to uh, to go through board borders. Nazar, how old are you now? I'm uh, 15. You're 15? Wow, okay. Uh, do you think, because uh, as you know, many people uh, stayed in Ukraine, and millions certainly, like yourself and your family, left, Um how do you feel about the the people who remained as opposed to the people who left? Uh, I have a lot of friends uh, that are still in Ukraine, and some of them are in Kiev, uh, and I feel very nervous about them, uh, about their safety. Uh, a lot of people who stayed in Ukraine are uh, currently in uh, uh in, in more safe part of Ukraine, like in Cherkasy, uh, it's near the border of, of Moldova. 
so it is more safe there. So a lot of people just left their city. They're still in Ukraine, uh, and they're relatively safe now. But I'm still very nervous, and yeah. <laughs> Are you able to, to keep up with them pretty well and, and, and communicate i mean obviously you're, you're nervous every day but how often are you able to figure out what kind of a situation that they're in mm, i try to text them uh, almost uh, every time i have an opportunity uh like twice a day or something like that mm, yeah <laughs> were, I, were you I, I presume you were a student in ukraine yes yes what were you studying uh, what? what? Where I was studying? No, what were you studying in particular? No, I'm not a, like I'm in a school. Okay. Uh, in in high school. High school. Uh, yes, and I had like political political studies, uh, history, uh, philosophics, uh, literature, like a lot of uh, I, I, <laughs> a lot of subjects, basically. Yeah, normal stuff until yeah. your whole life yeah, got turned stuff. upside down in in a week's time. And th- and, right, and, and I was going to say, so three weeks ago, for example, four weeks ago, you obviously never thought of being, I, I would suppose, in a position like this. Do you think you're ever going to go back or be able to go back to Ukraine? Or do you think this is the beginning? You're 15, you said. Is this the beginning of a whole new life for you? Uh, I I want to come back to Ukraine. I... Uh, a lot of teens in Ukraine, maybe uh, one month ago, uh, it was a popular opinion that Ukraine is a like third world, a third world country, and uh, it was popular to uh, go to other countries and leave, uh, live there. But now, after I experienced that, I understood how I am connected to this place, how I connected to this culture and to these people. And I do really want to come back and do something for this country. Seeing and knowing how many people are back home fighting and staying or just trying to do their part, how does that make you feel kind of looking in from the outside and and that that pride for all those people who feel so strongly about where they're from too? Uh, It it is pretty sad that I uh, cannot do a lot of of things about this whole situation – at least I'm trying to do something informationally. Uh, for example, just by talking to you and to people from the world. And this is at least that I can do. And it is pretty sad that I cannot do more for my country. How is the, you mentioned you're there with uh, your family, right? So how is everybody in the family taking, you said you're there with your dog too. How's the dog doing? <laughs> Uh, this is like this whole situation is crazy this is just surreal Uh, it is very hard as we have one infant uh, and two kids I'm the oldest one so it is very difficult uh, to be for such long time periods of time in a van or in a small apartment apartments this is a 
that is a very strange experience and it was very difficult. Did you even know really where you were going and, or is it just, you know what, and you were telling us a little bit when we started, we're crossing the border and then you kind of, what, did you just really happen upon people who were willing to just open their doors? And, and that's something else we've seen in some of these other areas as well. Some yes, people are coming with no plan like... and it's like, I'll take you in, C come with me. Yeah, so this is like the the strangest thing and I really love like I'm very surprised that people uh in different countries are so open uh and so supportive. Uh we didn't have any plan. First we planned to stay in Moldova, uh, uh because there are a lot of friends and relatives there. Uh but then we decided to move. But basically, it was on, not planned. And people are just willing to help in all, like, in different places. We had at least, we found at least three people, three, no, not three people, oh, three families that are willing to help us in Cyprus. And I'm very happy to see that support. Nizal, what do you... I'm very glad that... Yeah, what, what I'm very you... glad that... What do you think about about uh, Russia, Russians? Uh, you're talking about people or what? <laughs> it's, uh, could it be more precise? Sure. Uh, you've got, uh, the, you know, you've got a government uh, right on the border with yours uh, that's intent clearly on taking over your country. I don't know if you have relatives, maybe even friends in Russia. Uh, so I'm curious what your thoughts are now about the Russian government, the Russian people? Uh, uh, for, I, I will start talking about government. I think that uh, my opinion about Russian government was didn't change. Uh, in, in the past, I understood that uh, it, it was and it is very corrupt. It is authoritarian and... It is basically like very radical and very military. Uh, it, it, this government depends on military forces and it is very authoritarian. And I knew that uh, in the past. Uh, so my opinion didn't change a lot. Uh, I just didn't thought that they would actually invade us. Um, so that was quite surprising. I thought that it was a very rational thing to do, but they did it, and yeah, I just—I I guess I just uh, uh, got a proof for for my words and for my thoughts. Uh, talking about people, uh, I'm very glad that some people are uh, still willing to protest, uh, knowing, like even knowing that uh, they probably are not going to be heard. And they're probably going to be arrested. Uh, and this is, I'm very glad to see that. Uh, and it is very sad to see that some Russians are, some Russians are very supportive of actions of Putin. Uh, and it is very, see, and, it's, and it is very sad to see that a lot of them are just brainwashed by Russian media. Yes. It's Nazar there, just 15 years old, uh, with his family in Greece now. Nazar, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, 
three days for them to get out of the country. Mom, dad, a couple other kids. He's the oldest one. They've got an infant with them. Don't forget got the dog. The and the dog, too. And the dog. Uh, Nazar, thanks for the time. For most people, it's normal to go on a honeymoon trip right after getting married, but that was very much not the case for one Ukrainian couple. Verena Ariva got married on February 24th, same day the Russians invaded. One day later, she and her husband, they joined the army. She's now volunteering in Kiev, and she spoke with uh, Bridget Quinn on 1010 Winds in New York City. Right now, I'm in the center of Kiev at the Territorial Defense Force base, uh, and uh, it is silent in Kiev. I have been here for uh, 13 days, so I didn't have an ability to see the, the city, but still, it is. Uh, I haven't. We haven't heard uh, explosions or shootings in the center of Kiev. Everything is silent. Like it's the place. It is. Uh, everyone protects uh, the most because it is very play, uh, close to the governmental streets. Like the main uh, point for the Russian uh, aggression to take. So. Uh, like right now it is okay, but still uh, as everyone, I'm watching the news and uh, uh, the cities near Kiev, like Hostomel, Irpin, Bucha, are just... uh, the war is in there, uh, and people are hiding in shelters, having no network, having no electricity, no water, no food. And uh, that is a really terrific thing. Like, they are evacuated, but uh, no one can evacuate them in one day. So it, it just takes a lot of time. Well, we're glad to hear that you seem to be safe where you are. Uh, Yarina, tell us a, a little bit about your husband, Sladislav. I understand that right after you two got married, uh he joined the fight do you have an update on on what he's doing right now and his safety uh he's uh he came back from a combat mission uh yesterday and uh, he, right now he just has to do some work so he couldn't join uh, with me uh but uh he uh, came back after five days of combat mission uh, when he didn't have an ability to sleep normally, uh, thanks God he had uh, food to eat, a lot of volunteers are helping, so uh, there is no, not such a problem for those who fight to have uh, food to eat. But still, uh, he was absolutely exhausted. He came back uh, having no, even no ability to talk normally. And, <clears throat> of course, it was really hard for him. Uh, was uh, it, was he able to to describe the fight at all to you? In, in other words, how hard the Ukrainians are are fighting to defend their country? He is at the territorial defense. Uh, they are like the second line after uh, the regular army. So they cover their back. They hold uh, help to kill those sabotage groups who weren't killed by sab- uh, by a regular army. Uh, they help to destroy those tanks and machines which weren't destroyed by regular army. And uh, uh, he didn't see, like, he wasn't on the front, he was on the second line. But still, the life in there is uh, kind of hard, of course. They uh, don't have uh, a house to sleep in a warm place. Uh, they, as I have told, have no time to sleep at all. So he, when he came back, like, after five days uh, in there, he didn't sleep for two days. Had, it- had he ever fought before? Had he ever been in any type of combat before? No, of course not. Uh, he had some experience with armor because he's 
father and also his father-in-law were soldiers and they have taught him to uh, they, they have taught him to uh, use them but he didn't uh, take uh, like he, he didn't uh, fight now I understand that after you got married um, your husband joined the fight you wanted to do some volunteer work in Kiev have you been able to do that at all or have you pretty much had to just hunker down at that shelter to try to stay safe no, uh, we had. Uh, I had a lot of uh, ability to do this work, and I'm doing it, uh, <clears throat> like helping with the kitchen, helping with uh, uh, medicine, taking something, some clothing, uh, and bringing to it to base, or like helping a lot of work in here. <clears throat> for people who volunteer and also a lot of work in Kiev uh, for all people like everyone is working right now uh, someone helping uh, civil people who can't help themselves someone are uh, helping uh, army and uh, territorial defense like uh, uh, it is almost uh, almost silent in here we hear sirens maybe once per three hours so it is enough time to do some work and with that sort of attitude you volunteering your husband going off to fight uh, just a day after getting married how do you how do you see this playing out uh, the ukrainian people have shown such spirit you know it was like the hardest i hope the hardest night of my life when he came on the first mission uh, and uh, I just didn't, couldn't find a place for myself. I couldn't find what to do. I didn't know what to do. And I was just praying, smoking and crying the whole night. And it seemed like the whole life, it was so long, I couldn't even describe it. But, you know, uh, people in here, they are, uh, they know that we will win. They are furious. They are very angry. They are also laughing at Russians, but still they are very angry. And they are ready to fight for their land. They are ready to kill for their land. And that really inspires me. That really, like, this spirit, this vibe uh, in here, it is wonderful. And... Yeah. Uh, it really gives me strength. And I hope it gives you hope, too, that uh, sometime soon you can have a, a proper wedding celebration. I know that we will win. And I know that we uh, someday we will celebrate it normally. Or maybe we'll just celebrate the victory of Ukraine. Coming right up, short break, and then more sanctions for Russia. But will they make a difference? President Biden has announced that the U.S., along with the EU, will revoke most favored nation trade status from Russia. The U.S. will also ban imports of Russian seafood, alcohol and diamonds. So far, President Putin has pushed forward despite the hits to his country economically. Jeffrey Schatz, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, Jeffrey, first off, what exactly is that most favored nation trade status? It's basically a commitment to treat uh, one country as well as you treat everyone else. Uh, so it's it's basically normal trade status, and uh, it's it's what you treat your best customer. Okay. And I was just going to say we're not cutting them any deals anymore, uh, which makes sense given everything else we're doing. Are we the only ones revoking that status, though, or is everybody else going to join up too? Because he, the president, did say our allies this morning. Yes, and indeed, our European allies are going to follow suit very shortly. Uh, they have a much better, uh, bigger stake in trading with Russia. 
Uh, we don't have uh, much trade with Russia. And after the measures taken today and earlier in this week, we're basically not going to do business with Russia almost at all. Uh, so the tariffs are, are irrelevant, essentially, if you're not allowed to even import the goods. Uh, and, and that's what we're having. We're not going to send money to Russia. And in fact, we've taken their, their money and frozen it and probably will seize it for reparations. Okay, so what does this all do? The the sanctions, the uh, eventually revoking uh, most favored nation status, not not uh, accepting uh, you know imports of uh, what I guess diamonds, caviar, and yeah. stuff like no that. No caviar, no in caviar. Vodka. Right. Although we did the vodka, it's, it's like what one percent or something is yeah. actual Russian vodka. Right, most of it isn't. So so, what effect is it going to have, and how soon will it have it? Do you think on Russia? Well, I think the big uh, signal it sends is to our allies who are going to follow suit and who have more business with the Russians. Uh, And the big challenge for them will be to cut off as much as they can uh, purchases of Russian oil and gas. That's where Russia makes its money, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And uh, uh, that's uh, what has to stop uh, if we're going to uh, cut off funding that supports the Russian military in Ukraine. And that's, as the story has always been, is going to be a lot easier for for some of the countries. It's easier for us to do it than them. But even within Europe, it's easier for some countries to do it than some of the others. Exactly. So what does Russia do? Can it do anything to counter all of this? Or does it just crumble? Well, Russia can uh, and continues to get uh, a substantial amount of money from the current sales of oil and gas. And remember, those prices are inflated, as everybody knows. Uh, so they are making some windfall profits. Uh, that keeps their, their state uh, go- uh, government alive uh, for the near term. Uh, but this is going to be corrosive over, over time. But unfortunately, that doesn't help the poor people of Ukraine that are being bombed every day. So we're trying to ramp up the the pressure to really uh, get people in Russia to say, this isn't worth it, uh, and to try to get it stopped. But uh, essentially, we're impoverishing the Russian economy and sending them back to the 20th century. Well, yeah, the stock market hasn't been open for, for basically this whole time, right? Yeah. The market's closed. The ruble has, has, has fallen through the floor. Inflation is soaring. Uh, you're not going to be able to buy imported goods in, 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 uh, uh, in Russia uh, very soon, except if they're made in China. Uh, and so uh, it's going to affect across the board people in Russia who are going to have only one person to blame for it. OK, so if Russia were a, a democratic country, then the strategy would be to get uh, all the voters riled up so they would vote somebody out of office since it is not a democratic country, there aren't that many ways of getting Putin out of office. Yes, and, and there's the old-fashioned way, uh, but I think the military uh, leaders are the only ones who are in a position to do that. Jeffrey Schott is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This war is not just about Russia and Ukraine. China lurking in the background while the country claims it's neutral. It has opposed sanctions against Russia and continues to trade with it. And the way Russia feels about Ukraine, similar to the way China feels about Taiwan. Abraham Denmark, senior fellow at the Wilson Center. Abraham, do you think China could take similar action against Taiwan? 
Yeah, there's some clear parallels that one can see on the surface that one, uh, you have a smaller democracy up against a much larger authoritarian uh, country with a much larger military. Um, but there's also some important differences uh, in that Taiwan is an island. Um, the kinds of amphibious invasion that would be required to take Taiwan is much more difficult than what uh, Russia has been attempting in in Ukraine. Um, and there's also, I think, Ukraine is generally seen around the world as a country, as a recognized country, whereas Taiwan is not recognized by most countries around the world, including the United States. So there's some similarities, but also some pretty significant differences. What does China have to offer Russia now? And what does Russia have to offer China? And we'll, for the moment, keep uh, the issue of Taiwan and Ukraine off the table. What does each country have to give the other that makes them, in effect now, such buds? Well, in the, um, at, at, the, at the physical level, there is um, Russian oil, uh, which China needs to feed its uh, rapidly rising e uh, economy, and Chinese money, which Russia needs to uh, pay for everything else. Um, and that relationship becomes even more important, especially for Russia, as the rest of the world uh, cuts Russia off from international markets. They become even more dependent on China. Um, but beyond that, at the uh, political and strategic level, they have a shared uh, animosity, a shared dislike of the United States, of the international uh, rules-based order that the United States created after the Second World War. And they'd like to revise that system to be more accommodating to their interests that recognizes uh, their status as major powers that recognizes spheres of influence uh, that the United States, in their mind, should butt out of. Um, so it's really a, a combination of both the, the physical, the economic, the political, and the strategic that they see as uniting them. If there's more um, you know, oil and energy bans, can China, China make up for what's not being sold elsewhere? And then uh, on the other side of that, is the Chinese money worth enough to the Russians to, to, to bail them out of the economic problems? Well, they can't bail them out entirely. They can't make up for the rest of the world in terms of demand for oil, but they can provide an outlet uh, for Russia, uh, much as China has done for North Korea over the decades, um, where it's not going to be as good as the rest of the system, but it can uh, greatly diminish the the pain of economic sanctions and put a and reduce the amount of pressure that's on Putin and his and his uh, regime um, coming from a, a dramatic downturn in the economy can kind of m make the pain a bit less intense than it would be otherwise. I want to explore just a little bit uh, more what you were just saying before about the antipathy that, that China and Russia have toward the Western order imposed after World War II. In their view, what do you think they want the world to look like? If you're in, uh, head of the leader of China or if you're Vladimir Putin, you're the leader of Russia, what do you want this planet to, to look like? Well, they do have uh, somewhat different visions of what they would like the world to be. Um, broadly, though, uh, they would like to see both Russia and China recognized as major powers in the world. Um, uh, from uh, Putin's point of view, they would like to have um, greater ability to define a sphere of influence in which the rest of at least East Asia and Central Asia is uh, deferential to Moscow's interests. Um, and in which Europe has been cowed, the United States is less powerful in Europe, um, and uh, Russia is able to really dictate terms um, about how the economic and uh, geopolitical order of Europe is run. 
Whereas for uh, for China, um, they prefer to see an international system. What they would say is more democratic, uh, which is another way of saying in which the United States is less powerful, in which China is more powerful. Um, the, China, though, does not seek um, a global dominance the way we would see it uh, as um, some previous major powers, some previous authoritarian uh, regimes have done. Rather, they seek deference around the world where Chinese interests, more specifically the interests of the Chinese Communist Party, are respected around the world and dominant in the Indo-Pacific. Um, again, in their vision, the United States would be much less powerful. Uh, the U.S. allies in Asia, specifically Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, would be far weaker if not have gone away. And China would really be able to dictate uh, the major decisions and rules around the international system, and especially in its sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific. There was a meeting before the Olympics, and then they, they came out with a statement, the two presidents, and they said that this uh, alliance has, has no limits. But, I mean, we've seen them getting closer together. How strong are the ties, really? Because you can sail in the same direction, but then also, like, if you're taking on water, only to a certain point am I going to bail you out in the end. It's true. And it's it's short of an alliance or an axis. There's really not that much trust between the two. It's a somewhat transactional uh, relationship, and it's a relationship based on antipathy, not on really a shared vision. Um, the uh, the line that I've heard many times when discussing the uh, the China-Russia relationship is, you know, that really they'd like to have better relations with the United States, ideally. Um, but they can't, so they really need to align with one another uh, from their perspective to protect themselves against what they see as a more aggressive and hostile uh, United States. Um, so the line that I've always heard is uh, from their perspective, um, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And that's really been driving a lot of that relationship for the last few years. Uh, but I think what's important differently here is that it's not just the national interests. It's the personal relationship between Putin and Xi Jinping. I think they see themselves as world historical figures and see themselves as cooperating to take down what they see as an unfair and hostile international order run by the United States. Abraham Denmark there, senior fellow at the Wilson Center. He's got the book U.S. Strategy in the Asian Century, Empowering Allies and Partners. Abraham, thanks. A photographer in Ukraine covering the exodus of people leaving their homeland from a train station in Lviv, which is near the border with Poland, he says. He has watched thousands of people waiting for an opportunity to board a train to flee the conflict. The true victims of war, he says, people that have nothing to do with the conflict and whose lives are turned upside down by war. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Stitcher. 